Hello, everyone. Quick editor's note before the podcast begins. Uh, my guest's microphone decided to stop being a microphone about 15 minutes before the end of our recording. So about that time, you will notice that the audio quality for my guest gets a little bad, and that's because we're going to wind up using the audio picked up by my microphone from him sitting across the table from me. We wanted to keep a good, good conversation as much as possible, but it's not going to sound as great. Today on Maker's Cast, I discuss tattoos and... Is that a JoJo reference? With tattoo artist Ty Higgins. Hello and welcome to another episode of Maker's Cast, my excuse to talk to interesting people in the name of marketing. I'm Matt, and I'm joined today by my friend Ty Higgins. Hi. Hello. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Good. It's, very been, good. it's been a little while. Yes, it has. <laughs> Since we used to live together in TK at Belmont. Mm-hmm. And then occasionally at Barnes & Noble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That was always a really weird thing. <laughs> it's always jarring when you see somebody that you haven't seen for a while, and you see them in a random place at a random time that you didn't expect. Especially like their it, place of work. Like, how do I broach this right now? Right. It's like, I know that you're trying to make that that, that sweet, sweet Barnes & Noble salary. That quiche money. Yeah. And uh, I'm also there, like, trying to find a book on, like, Chinese linguistics or something. <laughs> Some weird, sp- whatever stupid thing that I've decided to be into for that time right. period. And then that train of thought gets interrupted by, like, oh, I know him. How do I, how do I know him? Where, oh, I know him. I used to live with him. Yeah. Should I bother him? Should I not? Should I leave him alone? What's the deal? I wonder if they still even house students in that building or still call it that at this point as many things as have altered on that campus i don't know i don't know i bet it's still if they do still keep students there it's definitely where they keep um all the foreign exchange students (laughs) that was always the case all the kids from hong kong all the kids from germany i loved it that's what got my i didn't clock that but that's accurate yeah my whole love of foreign language i think really came from living with all the kids from different different cultures and stuff. I've right. got so many funny stories about the kids from Hong Kong. Huh. I've got so many, just from that one year that I lived in yeah. there. Yeah, I guess for me, the main hallmark of who lived in TK was everyone was a year younger than me, because I was the weird junior who was still living on campus. But if you, I think for your situation, it worked out well, though, because yeah. you were saving money. You were saving money by living on campus. I was losing money by living on campus. I lost an insane amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I could have lived with my parents but I got really used to having all that freedom of not living with my parents. Right. And I was willing to take the financial hit mm-hmm. in spite of the financial freedom that I would have had. Yeah. Losing Dif- my personal freedom. Different barriers. So I had freedom. to I had to trade like do I want to have more financial freedom but less personal freedom mm-hmm. or do I want more personal freedom and less financial freedom and I I took the personal freedom over that. Mm. Damn, social commentary concepts right out mm. the gate. <laughs> Fresh out the gate with it, yeah. you know. I bring it. I bring it hot. And with that in mind, mm-hmm. so uh, before we get going, you are now primarily a tattoo artist. Yes, full time, uh, full time, excellent, full time, full time. Yeah. So, I think m- probably my place to start, just so I don't ask it, is what when either like in the shop or when someone knows you do tattooing. What what is the most commonly asked question you get? Um, it's usually. Oh, you tattoo? Where do you tattoo? Can you take a look at my tattoo? And it's always not in the best timing. Mm-hmm. It's when I'm out to eat dinner right. with my, you know, for my family from the tattoo shop because they really are family. Hmm. But the people that I go out to the tattoo shop, and if we go out and get dinner sometime on an off day, 
which we try to do that type of thing just to keep like our community strong in the shop. Yeah. And we'll go, you know, we'll all go out to dinner somewhere. Or we'll go do something together or whatever. And when you see a group of like six very heavily tattooed people all in one place, it's either some crime is about to happen or it's about to be some interesting conversation with the tattoo shop people. Exactly. And it's always, oh, you guys tattoo? Where do you tattoo? Will you take a look at my tattoo? And then they start like taking their shirt off right. or like unzipping pants to show me something on the hip. And I'm like, bro, there are children here. We're in, you know, a normal family restaurant right, right now. It is not the time I'm trying to not focus on tattooing. No, it, it's like what you always hear about when people find out people are singers or something. You're, oh, sing me something. Oh, it, sing me a song, yeah. Yeah, if, like if you walk up to someone and they say they're a dentist, you don't go, well, you gotta take a look. Yeah. I'm off the clock, my dude. Yeah, let me let me pull my gums back so you can take a look at this cavity. I, I will use these convenient soup spoons at the uh, restaurant in which we are eating, yeah. not a dentist office. Yeah, to <laughs> pry my... <laughs> My gaping maw open so you can take a look at this molar. It's been giving me issues. Oh, gracious. Uh, so that's uh, Titan. Titan tattoo, yeah. yeah. 2605 Lebanon Pike. It's like five minutes away, not even five minutes away from our old shop, yeah. which is really nice. But we've doubled our square footage. So we've now got all the artists that were at our old Nashville location, mm. which is, I mean, technically Donaldson, which is maybe 10 minutes away from the airport. Yeah. We've got all the artists that we had there, which is myself, Wes, Kelsey, Brittany, and uh, the Piercer Bonnie. And then all of the artists that were at the Carthage shop, which is the owner, Karen, and the apprentice, Justin, and uh, Trish. Hmm. So now we have all of our artists all in one place. We have two piercers, so we always have someone staffed full-time. We're open seven days a week now, mm. but no one has to work seven days a week because we have enough people. Right. And it's just, it's, I'm not saying that our old situation at the old shop was bad mm -hmm. because it wasn't. It was fabulous. This is somehow even better. Cool. That's you, what you want to hear. You don't, yeah, you don't normally get a success story like that. <laughs> like, everything was good, and then everything got awesome. <laughs> that, that doesn't happen. No, it, not really. But it did. It even when was. you were saying that, I was expecting a different word. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, I have a lot of questions about how the process of getting into that started. But to, for the sake of background, uh, so when we met, you were do, uh, studying studio art. Yeah, yeah at, studio at art, fine Belmont. art. Yeah, fine arts, emphasis in drawing. Mm. So of this huge field that is fine art or studio art, mm -hmm. I could name you know at least 10 different disciplines inside that huge umbrella. Absolutely. But as far as the paper is concerned... Bachelor. That's all that matters. Yeah. Bachelor. Even when you get married, it doesn't change from being bachelor's degree. It seems kind of messed up. Should be called, uh, I don't know, married bachelor? <laughs> Something like that? I have no follow-up to that joke, I'm afraid. <laughs> I set up a punchline that I didn't have. But uh, So at what point in uh, your studio art sort of studies did you start to uh, become interested in tattooing? Was it after you got a tattoo? No, I was always very interested in tattooing. My older stepbrother was a Marine hmm. and has a bunch of tattoos. And I met him when I was like seven or eight years old. Hmm. And I was fascinated because I didn't really know anybody in my tiny middle of nowhere Alabama community that had tattoos. Or at least didn't show them. Or at least didn't show them. And if they did have them, I didn't know. Mm -hmm. So meeting my stepbrother, and he, he basically explained to me that, you know, tattooing is, is essentially... You find a guy that runs a special business. Mm. He has special skills and special equipment, and you pay him money, and he puts a drawing in your skin forever. <laughs> and I said, bro, how do I be that guy? That sounds awesome. Mm -hmm. I'm that guy now. 
Yeah, you are. I did. You I did, did the, the thing. thing. Yeah, yeah, I made it. So, I think there was a constant weird obsession with tattooing, with me being a kid. Yeah. That never really went away. Mm. I wanted to do all kinds of stuff. Was it? I want to be a scientist. I want to be an entomologist. I want to do this or that, whatever. Tattooing was the one that always stayed. Interesting. It always. It never, 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 ever went away. Ever. So, so was that the impetus to go into studio art to to sort of. Um, refine your hand for that purpose not exactly okay uh my whole family pretty much told me that tattooing is not a career choice right and that really only military guys and bikers and criminals have tattoos right and you don't have military service you don't have a motorcycle and you're a little too straight laced (laughs) so you shouldn't be a tattoo artist you should be a fine artist and my a lot of people wanted me to go towards advertising sure because advertising, there's always going to be products to sell. As long as capitalism exists, there's always a product to sell. I'm married to a graphic designer. I yeah. know this very well. So there's always, which means that there's always a product to sell. There's always a need for a billboard or mm-hmm. an ad or a phone ad or something, which means there's always a job for a graphic designer. But I didn't want to be a graphic designer. I didn't really see, I wanted to be a fine artist. Mm-hmm. And then I got really into fine art, and I didn't really want to be a fine artist either. Right. I don't know if you remember me arguing with the Belmont's director of galleries. Not especially, I argued no. with her a lot during my senior year, junior and senior year, when I was doing my exhibitions, mm. about how I didn't want to frame my work. Right. I didn't want to title my work. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to sign my work. A lot of a lot of issues like that. Because mm. I don't really see the need to do those things. And right. some artists do feel the need to title everything and sign it and put it in a nice frame that complements the work. I get it. Mm-hmm. That's not me. Yeah, that's why it's their art. That's why it's that's the difference between your art and my art and whoever mm-hmm. is that there is some there's I don't know if a cognitive difference, there's some kind of difference in the narrative and the way that you think about your art and where it is in your life and mm-hmm. the timeline and the greater world of fine art or whatever. I just don't see the need to, to do certain things like that. Yeah, because things like framing and titling, that that stuff is good as context. Mm-hmm. That, that's an extra layer. But if you don't want an extra layer, you just have the drawing image. on wall. Right. It, you know, it can be in itself a multi-layered thing mm-hmm. that's just on the paper. You don't need the sort of, I guess, non-diegetic level. Right. There's a The context in which you view art is directly related to the way that you mentally and emotionally process art. Mm-hmm. So I can show you the same, the literally the same drawing, the same drawing mm-hmm. in my sketchbook. I can show it to you and you hold it in your hands and you're like, wow, that's a cool sketch. Oh. And you hand it back to me and you think, you know, mentally you're saying, oh, he drew this mm-hmm. in a sketchbook. I'm holding the real thing, which this is the same object that yeah. I've, that Ty created that you're holding. You know, you know that I had that book with me. It was in my backpack. Uh, maybe I took it somewhere and did a sketch of, I don't know, a landscape or whatever, mm. and you're looking at it, and you're looking at that landscape as I saw it, and you know that. Then let's say I take that piece of paper out of my notebook, and I cut it to remove the little fringes at the top where the notebook connects, and then I put that in a frame, and it's in a white wall gallery. Now you have a different understanding of that piece, having never seen it before. Yeah. So if you saw it for the first time in that setting, and it has landscape number seven (laughs) with my signature on it and you know eight by 11 inches and some other information and you have an understanding of it now let's say that some time passes the drawing is now 200 years old Mm -hmm. it's in the louvre 
it's behind an inch of bulletproof glass with a velvet rope around it so you can't get within 10 feet of it. Right. The way you view that drawing is completely different from the way that you view the drawing in my sketchbook, mm-hmm. even though they're the same drawing. Yeah. No, that's yeah. super, super true. I, I, that also reminds me of my experience doing, like, writing classes in mm-hmm. college is there's this immense peer review process, which is necessary, but I think needs to be refined in some way. Anyway, mm-hmm. that's another topic. Mm. But I got this distinct sense that at a certain point, as I was reading all my fellow students' stories to critique them at class the next day, that if I didn't know this was a first draft for a class, right. if this had been bound and sold in a store, I would approach it so differently. Absolutely. I would forgive so many things that I then perceived as errors or awkward because as soon as it is bound and placed in a different context, I assume it's intentional. Right, so when you're reviewing one of your friend's short stories or mm-hmm. whatever, and you, you're reviewing it, and you know that, oh, this is my friend Dave. Mm-hmm. He sits across from me at the other table. He has the good pens. He, he, yeah, and you know he always wears that same hat, whatever. You know Dave. Mm-hmm. You and Dave sometimes you know, chat about, how'd you feel about that lecture? I really didn't like that reading assignment, blah, blah, blah. You know each other on some kind of level. Yeah. You, you know Dave. Not the same way that you know Stephen King, mm-hmm. or the same way that you know, you know William Shakespeare, or whoever, whatever writing person that you want to mention, whatever author or whatever person, yeah. it's not the same. So when you the, the same way with fine art, or the same way with music. If you listen to some guy on the street playing some original acoustic song, and you walk by him in downtown Nashville as he plays in the street corner mm. of you know Second and Broadway. You listen to his music differently than you would listen to it if it came on the radio or if you heard it played with a full band at a nightclub mm-hmm. or whatever. Or, or as like a cleaned up, edited, orchestrated full, MP3 on your phone. Very, very finely polished yeah. stream on Spotify mm-hmm. or whatever. They're not the same. Mm-hmm. They're not the same. So I think context is a huge, huge part of fine art. Absolutely. Of any kind of art. Mm-hmm. For mm-hmm. sure. So... Would you say that, um, I guess this is kind of two questions, what, what would you say are the sort of prerequisite skills to being a good tattoo artist, and are, are any of those refined in a sort of collegiate studio art setting? That's hard. So I think that for me, and this is just my interpretation of it from me knowing good artists, I feel that the three most important things that you need to have is you, you do need to have fine art skill. Mm. You need to have some understanding of like the fundamentals, you know, line, shape, form, color, value, all that stuff. You need to have discipline. Mm. And discipline is one that a lot of even very great tattoo artists don't have discipline. Mm. And you have to have some charisma and salesmanship. Sure. You have to be part artist, part salesman, mm. which is a little weird because a lot of artists are kind of shy and they like to have their egos stroked right. and they don't really like to be the center of attention and they have trouble making hard eye contact and being honest and upfront about their art. But with people in the world of tattooing, you have to be firm mm. and you have to be confident. Yeah. No one wants an, a, a non-confident tattoo artist. <clears throat> no one wants an unsure tattoo artist. Yeah. You, want, you want somebody who knows... Yeah, man, I can do that for you. Mm-hmm. I can do that portrait of your mom. I can do that, you know, floral scene. I can turn this childhood photograph into a tattoo. Mm. I can do 
X, Y, Z, whatever thing you want. Mm -hmm. So some of that can be refined in a college setting, specifically the discipline Mm -hmm. and the fine art. The sort of basic skills. The sort of basic skills of fine art. It never hurts to have an understanding of art history. True. So you can look at the work of, you know, Rembrandt or Mm -hmm. the work of... I don't know, Andy Warhol or, you know, whoever, you know, top five artists that every person in the world knows. Yeah. You can, or Andrew Wyeth or whoever, Mm. you can look at their work and learn from them and learn what is and what is not effective. But Mm. the rules for tattooing are different. So you have to unlearn a lot also. Yeah. The canvas is literally different. Yeah. The the canvas is different. The way that you think about a design is completely different. Mm. There are a ton of rules in tattooing. So you have to learn those. Because, you know, some things just don't work on the skin. Mm-hmm. They just don't. Sure. Or they work at first, and then, you know, two years later after it ages, it no longer works. Right. So there's rules. Mm-hmm. And some of it, yes, though, you're, you're, you're right on that. Some of it very much can be learned and refined in a college setting. Mm. But, yeah, and, and that sort of leads me to one of the things I was most interested in asking about, which is that... Tattooing seems to be one of the few things that I'm aware of that still works on kind of an apprenticeship system. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what what does entering that apprenticeship look like? What's sort of... Scary. <laughs> I'm sure. So what, what is like you walk in, say, I want to be a, a an apprentice to, you know, I don't even know how to phrase this. How does yeah. the process begin? So I did it wrong. <laughs> okay. And it worked for me. Sure. So, but what I did is I was in college and I was working part-time at that plumbing supply warehouse. Mm. Working all the time, being in college, you you were there for it, mm. for at least a year of it. You saw the, the madness that was my life, and yeah. it only got more and more intense as time went on. So I made a list of all of the tattoo shops in the nearby area mm. within a one-hour's drive. That was my commitment, that I could drive. I could still drive an hour there and an hour back and still get the rest of my stuff done in my life that I needed to be done. Sure. I made a list. And I just started calling the shops and going to the shops. And I found one that I was very excited about that opened up. Oh God, I can't even remember the name of the road. I remember the name of the shop. It was called Grim City. Hmm. G-R-I-M-M, Grim City. I was over in that area for something with my brother. And then I see the tattoo shop, grand opening, Grim City Tattoo. And there's a dude that steps out and he's got this long red beard. And he's got this huge, thick septum ring that looks like it's about as thick as my pinky. Sure. And his head is shaved. And he has his whole top of his head is tattooed. And he like leans down to grab something out of his pocket. Mm. And I see this huge thing tattooed on top of his head. I was like, Dylan, stop the car. I got to talk to him. So Dylan pulls over and I run out and I run up to him and I like write my information down in a sticky note of like my Instagram handle and my phone number and my name. I was like, I want to be a tattoo apprentice. I see that the shop just opened up. Give me a chance. Mm. Look at my work on Instagram. All my drawings, like I did at the time, I would just all my sketches and stuff. I would post something every day on Mm. Instagram, just about. And he kind of popped open his phone real quick and looked at my drawing. He said, you know, you are pretty good at drawing, uh, but I can't apprentice you because in Tennessee, you have to be tattooing in the state of Tennessee for at least three years before you can take an apprentice. There's a a rule on that. And he said, but the guy that runs the shop, whose name I don't remember, he will be in next Saturday. He's on vacation this week. He's gone. So you need to come back next Saturday, bring a binder like a portfolio, like a mm-hmm. physical portfolio of your drawings and bring them in. We'd love to sit and talk with you. And I was so excited. I was yeah. like, bro, my dreams, my dreams are <laughs> coming true. I'm doing it. And I showed up the next weekend and he wasn't there. And I showed up the next weekend and he wasn't there. And he showed up the next weekend. I was persistent. 
Hmm. And he never was there. Weird. A week later, it closed. <laughs> well, they didn't have any business. Very good that I dodged that bullet and didn't get an apprenticeship there. Yeah. So I got on and I marked that one off my list and just kept moving down the list. And I would, I would call and I'd say, hey, look, before I drive out there, I'm an artist. I'm a fine artist. I am going to college for fine art. I really want to be a tattoo artist. I want to get a tattoo apprenticeship. Are you willing to take an apprentice? And most places just told me, no, we don't have the room. I'm sorry. Some of them were really nice. Yeah. And they said, you know, I don't, but I know someone that runs a shop in Hendersonville. Hmm. Here's his phone number. Here's his name. Tell him that I called. Yeah. And I'd call that guy and he'd say, man, I'm really sorry. I, you know, I already have an apprentice Mm -hmm. and I can't have two. It's too much work. Yeah. You know, and some people just told me, screw off and I don't want to talk to you. Right. And you got that. And then eventually, I just got down the list and I got to Titan. I was supposed to go on a date with someone from Belmont. Hmm. And it was a Saturday. I worked from 7.30 until noon at the warehouse. Mm -hmm. I got home, took a shower. And then right when I got out of the shower, I remember this like vividly. Right after I got out of the shower, she texted me and she says, hey, man, I'm really sorry. Something came up. I'm I'm going to have to cancel for tonight. Mm -hmm. I'll have to do it in a week or whatever. And I'm like, man. That sucks. My whole, you know, you like you prepare yourself emotionally yeah. for a whole day of doing stuff, mm-hmm. and then something falls apart, and then you can't do it, and you're like, "What do I do with my time?" So I had that moment. So what can I do? I can call another shop on the list, and that was Titan. Hmm. And I spoke with Karen, and she said, "Yeah, you know, why don't you come on in? I don't have an apprentice. <laughs> come, you know, before I before I just tell you no on the phone, let me take a look at your drawings. Yeah, and then I'll tell you no, basically." <laughs> And she was she was really sweet to me though, and I came in with a big stack of my drawings, and she looked at him and she was impressed with my drawings, and she said, "Why don't you come by next Saturday and just spend the day with us? Hmm. And you know, maybe if you're lucky, someone will let you watch him tattoo, <laughs> or you can have a conversation with somebody about it." Hmm. And I was very persistent. I just kept coming back, and I. She eventually, after I think about three weeks, she offered me an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. I didn't even read the apprenticeship contract. I just signed it. I yeah. was so excited. I brought the apprenticeship contract. I made a, I had to make a copy of it, and I have a printer at my house because it was broke. And so I had to bring it to work at the warehouse and use the office copy machine to make a copy. Right. So in doing that, I showed it to my dad, and he said, oh, man, this is real now, isn't it? <laughs> he thought that me wanting to tattoo was like a phase. Sure. And that I would eventually get over it and go somewhere else at, at some point between the six and 22 right <laughs> so i uh got my apprenticeship and stuck to it and here i am here you are so how, how much of uh, the crew that was at titan then is still there like when most, you first showed up most nice most what we did have is we had karen and kelsey were both piercing and then kelsey was sick of being distracted in the middle of a tattoo so when you're, <laughs> you're like four hours in tattooing somebody like you know three out of four hours and you've been tattooing them for three hours yeah and then suddenly five people come in and it's you know a bachelorette party and they all want to get piercings together right well now you have to stop doing what you're doing go set up the piercing booth do paperwork consult them on the piercings do five piercings which Mm -hmm. takes time get them cashed out and then go back to your client your client's skin is now all swollen and angry and whatever Mm. And now you have to go back into that tattoo. And you're, it requires so much focus Yeah, that you're in the middle of this thing and you're, you've got all these moving parts and you're saying, okay, I have this line here and I have to shade this color this way and I have to make sure that I leave enough room to put in a highlight and this and that. And then i got to do five piercings now. Yeah. So she got sick of doing that. So 
she quit piercing, so we had to find a full-time piercer. And that basically, for a short while, we had kind of this one chair that was never fully being taken up by somebody. Right. So we had a few people. Mm-hmm. We had a few people. We actually had, um, for a short while, there was a girl named Ellie who runs Gratitude Tattoo mm-hmm. in East Nashville. Shouts out to my friend Ellie, Turbo Slick. She knows what that means. <laughs> she guested for a short while, for a few months, because she was working at one shop and decided she was going to open up her own, and there was a brief period where she was trying to find a building. Mm. And then, you know, you have to find a building that can accommodate your needs, and then you have to build out the building to make it fit the health department's regulations, yep. and that takes time. And during all that time, she was working with us, mm-hmm. doing tattoos. So how long... Is the apprenticeship process a X amount of time or sort of a, a, a checklist of things you must accomplish? Both. Sure. Both. So it's typically at least one year. Mm-hmm. And then there is a checklist of, of things that you have to deal with. So you have to, typically you don't start really tattooing until maybe six months in. Sure. And then after that, it's off to the races. Mm-hmm. And you're limited at first. When you very, very first come in, you don't really get to watch anybody tattoo. You mostly just clean. Sure. You just scrub stuff. You scrub tubes. You run the autoclaves. You scrub oh, not, the not people. No. <laughs> no, you just scrub materials. Sure. You mop the floor. You clean the baseboards with a toothbrush. Mm. You got to get, you know, in, in some shops, one of my friends was telling me about her apprenticeship, and she said that every day the boss would show up super early. So the, most tattoo shops don't open until like noon, yeah. 11 a.m., something like that. Her boss would always be there super early because he has to do books and, I don't know what the word, administrative things yeah. to do. He would hide 13 pennies around the shop every morning. And she had to clean the whole shop every right. day. And you have to find all 13 pennies. Or it's not clean. Otherwise, it's not clean because you missed something. <laughs> so there's always something like that. There's always some kind of, you know, for a while they made me wear a pink cape because I was a pretty little tattoo princess. Yeah, you And were. if anybody had to ask... What's up with the pink cape? Mm-hmm. I'm a pretty little tattoo princess. So there's a healthy amount of humiliation. There's a healthy amount of being berated for mm-hmm. whatever. So my nickname was Skinny Jeans, my whole apprenticeship, because I wore not even skinny jeans. I wear straight leg jeans. Right. Levi's 5'11 straight legs. Just happened to be a skinny person. I'm just a skinny guy, and they fit me you. well. So they called me Skinny Jeans. That was my, and it stuck like that. Yeah, I, man. So there's a lot of like, piddly nonsense stuff you have to put up with sure you know you got to scrub everything you got to do you know there was a guy that came in for a back piece and he had the hairiest back of all time oh, guess who no. had to shave it yeah me what Stocking. a smart dude having to get somebody else to shave it because he's paying him for a tattoo right that's a good strat right mm. so there there's a there's a lot of a healthy humiliation sure and then during my apprenticeship karen was having me do I had to do two finished designs with line drawings every day and that started maybe four months in three mm. months in and then Karen asked me you know what what style do you want to tattoo I want to do American traditional tattoos mm. okay draw me some realistic black and gray roses <laughs> constantly pushing you out of your comfort zone sure every day pushing you out of your comfort zone every day being something different every day having to do some other humiliating task but my apprenticeship really wasn't that bad. Sure. Oh, and the old guys way back when, you had to be half a cowboy to be a tattoo artist. <laughs> they made you do some ridiculous stuff. And that's just how it is. Yeah. That's part of the world. 
Yeah, it's it's such an odd world, it seems like, and that this is as someone who's literally never walked into a tattoo shop before. Right. But, you know, as we discussed before, the, the public perception, which I feel like has changed recently, it's and we changed can talk a about lot. that, of people who have tattoos versus the incredible amount of skill that it takes, and also, like, in order to keep your shop running, mm-hmm. how much it is, like, medical-grade cleanliness. Mm-hmm. It's cleaner than a hospital in our yeah. shop. Clean, literally cleaner than a hospital. I bet. There's a lot that goes into it. There are a lot of rules. Yeah. There's a lot of... I'm glad there are, to be Yeah, there's a ton frank. of rules. And Tennessee has a pretty strict health department. There are mm. only... I think California's health department's a little bit more stringent than Tennessee's. Yeah. And I think that Tennessee and New York are about the same Not as far as strictness goes. Sure. Uh, as two people from the Southeast, I'm pretty cool with that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty <laughs> fine with that. Alabama does not have a very strict... Uh, health department. No, I, I probably can't speak that well of Georgia either. No, probably not. I don't know, though. There are some really good artists in Georgia. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, there's good artists everywhere, though. Yeah. Well, Georgia's weird because you have Atlanta, then you have the rest of it. And then the everything else. Yes. yes. Where yeah. I'm from. Yeah. Yeah, that's the same way with... Well, it's not quite the same with, with Alabama. With Alabama, you have Mobile, mm-hmm. Montgomery, Birmingham, and Huntsville. Yeah. And that is the kind of zigzag line of population that comes across sort of the middle and bottom of Alabama. Right. And the rest is just nothing. <laughs> Empty void of pine trees. Indeed. So you mentioned um, you, were, you were telling Karen you wanted to do like traditional American tattoos. Yes. At some point in your apprenticeship, or just a apprenticeship, do you develop a specialty? No. You don't develop a specialty until after you've been licensed for a while. Okay. A lot of times, that is not your choice. Mm. Seems like, to me, in my experience. It seems like you have a thing that you love to do, mm-hmm. which for me, I love to do American traditional tattoos. I find that because they have so many rules and because everything is so formalized, images are very flat, lines typically are you know very bold, and the colors go from you have solid black shading that whips out and then you have solid color that whips out mm-hmm. and then open skin. And there are rules to the way that certain things are drawn. Mm-hmm. And all those rules come from the old guys that tattooed in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. And they set the rules. Like, there's a dude named uh, Tattoo Zeke, Zeke Zeke Owens, and Zeke's been dead for a few years now. But Zeke was a classic American traditional artist. He followed the rules because that was just what tattooing looked like at the time. Yeah. Which is the, what you're thinking of when you think of a tattoo. When you think of, like, the mom heart, the Sailor (laughs) Jerry eagle, and all that stuff. Pin-up girls. That's what he did. So, you know, the the clipper ship, Mm -hmm. like the classic sailboat with all the big sails on it that are sort of square sales. Tattoo Zeke had a rule that if you don't have seven birds flying in the cloud around the clipper ship, it's not a clipper ship. Interesting. Yeah. Weird little rules like that. Mm -hmm. Little rules like certain colors that you can't use next to each other. You can't have color transitions in traditional work. But I find all those rules to be very freeing. It's less decisions you have to make. Kind of. Yeah. But it becomes very challenging. True. At the same time, mm-hmm. to make a unique, exciting design. Yeah. So you have you have all these ideas, and you try to execute those ideas, mm-hmm. and you have limitation. Yeah. So what you were saying about the specialty, there's always going to be something that you as an artist are interested in. I mean, even with writing, you know, you may have someone that's into nonfiction stuff. You may have someone that's into sci-fi 
fantasy, mm. like really over the top, crazy sci-fi fantasy. And then right. you have the people that are more into the plausible stuff that, yeah. you know, what's going to be happening in the year 2060. Hard sci-fi. Hard sci-fi. Yeah. I don't know. I, I didn't know that was a term. I learned a new mm-hmm. thing today. And they're all writers, mm-hmm. but the writing is completely different. It's the same thing with, with artists. Yeah. So I feel weird about some of the questions I'm asking because I feel like a lot of people who are going to be listening are listening because they like, they know you and your work or they know tattooing. So I'm going to be asking questions they know the answers to, uh, but just because I'm curious. So when you walk into a shop, you've never been in this shop before. Right. You don't know any of the artists. Don't know the artists, yeah. Is it just who's available? Or if you say, I want X, do, and uh, multiple people are available, do they go, that guy's the guy who does X? It depends from shop to shop. Okay. Now I can talk about where I work. Let's say you come in and you want a classic, a shop minimum tattoo. Mm. You know, something that's going to be $60 or $80 or whatever shop minimum is. You're wanting, I don't know, a little, um, you know, like the diamonds symbol from like a card? Yeah. Like a card deck diamond? Mm -hmm. You want that. And you want it, I don't know, this big, size of 50 cent coin. And you want to put it on your wrist. Anybody in the shop can do that. Sure. And that's going to be 60 bucks Mm -hmm. or 80 bucks or whatever. So, now, there's the, so there's a shop minimum, like yeah, no, matter, shop, no matter the no size, matter, it will it be at least It will this be cost. at least that much. And that's because it costs a lot of money to set up. Because Absolutely. like you spoke of earlier, the health department is, is so, so, so specific on what you have to have mm-hmm. for a proper setup. And all those things cost money. Mm-hmm. And it's good that the health department's like that. And I'm not complaining about that. But it is expensive. Yeah, it's time and money. And so... For me to make any money, I have to go above at least a percentage above the cost of the value of the materials it costs for me to set up, mm-hmm. and I have to factor in the amount that Uncle Sam and the federal government is going to take away from me. So that's where you get shop minimum from. Sure. And people are, it's only this big. Why does it cost $60? Because, bro, look at all the stuff I have to use. Mm-hmm. Dental bibs, a razor to shave you, the ointment that we use, what we use to get the ointment out of the ointment container. Because you can't just use your fingers because it's not sanitary. All these little things add up over time. And then the money it costs to run the autoclaves Mm -hmm. because you have to use sterile equipment every time you tattoo. So all the tubes and needles and everything, the needles are all single use and they're expensive and you buy those per box of 50 or 25 depending on the company you buy from. Then the steel tubes, those cost money. Or unless you're using disposable tubes, those cost money. If you're using steel, you have to autoclave those. You can only open them one time. And it doesn't matter whether or not you open them and use them. Once they're open, they cannot go back in the toolbox. Right. They have to go in the dirty bin, mm-hmm. and then they have to be scrubbed and autoclaved and dated. And you have to use them within a certain date of the, the date of sterilization. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you have to sterilize them again, whether or not they've been used. All these things play into what is shop minimum. Absolutely. Or what is the price of a tattoo? Mm. So your question, it depends on what the tattoo is. If sure. it's some little shop minimum banger pork chop type tattoo, you know. People getting pork chops on their wrists? No. Uh, <laughs> pork chop is a um, like a banger. It's a term of, you know, it's not necessarily a tattoo that is going to require a specialized artist or ah. a special style or whatever. It's, those are tattoos that just about any artist could do. Sure without really any kind of preparation. Things that you don't need to set an appointment for. Yeah, you can slop it out. Yeah, just things that, you know, what is that? Nah, 100 bucks, whatever. <laughs> I'll put a dove on your arm, bro. 100 bucks. Now, if someone comes in, and you, let's say you come in and you want to get a portrait of your favorite writer, hmm. you need to talk to not me. 
I don't really do portraits. I'm not there yet. Mm-hmm. I'm not really a black and gray realism guy yet. You should speak to an artist that is known for doing portraits. Sure. That's just how it is. Mm-hmm. If someone comes in wanting American traditional, almost, I think just about everybody in the shop would try to direct them towards me. Mm-hmm. And if I'm open that day, I'll try to get it done right then. Mm-hmm. Or if it's going to be something that's going to require some preparatory drawing, we get them scheduled. So everybody kind of has their own style that they like to work in. Mm. But we all can do just about whatever you want. Sure. So uh, you mentioned a couple times uh, having a piercer on staff. Is that standard, like, to have someone who does piercings at a tattoo shop? Like, is that pretty much everywhere? Yeah. Typically, yeah. Mm. Some some places don't. And, and I guess because you require some of the same, like, sterilization and cleanliness, it just makes sense to do it there. Right. And, and also the clientele right. would theoretically be similar. The people that want to be tattooed typically are the same kind of people that would want to get pierced. Right. I mean, I'm uh, a prime example. <laughs> the, the Venn diagram is nearly a circle. Pretty much, yeah. And then you do have people that come in and have a ton of piercings that have never been tattooed. Yeah. And you have people that have a ton of tattoos and have never been pierced. Mm-hmm. So you do have people that are separate on separate sides of that Venn diagram. But most of the people that are associated with piercing are associated with tattooing. Sure. You're right on that. So, um, you know, we've talked a couple times about... The, the perception of tattoo artists and people who are tattooed. And, you know, we briefly touched on how that has changed. Mm-hmm. When did that happen, that it became more acceptable? There, I want to say there was maybe two or three big events. Okay. Where Lyle Tuttle is this really famous tattoo artist. He's like a legend, basically, in the tattoo community. You would know him if you saw a picture of him. I'm trying to find his. Yeah. So he he gained uh, he gained a lot of popularity during his during his tattoo career, and during his career there was like this big boom mm. in tattooing, and he started tattooing celebrities. Okay. And I mean, I'm talking like celebrities, like rock stars. So he would tattoo these people, and he was also ex- very heavily tattooed. He had a full body suit. Pretty much every inch of his body except for his like neck and face and right. hands and feet were tattooed. But pretty much everything else, he had a full suit. So he was always clothed, even not having clothes on. <laughs> he started tattooing celebrities. And people, ordinary people, me and you, saw these tattoos on our favorite singer, our favorite drummer from our favorite rock band. And they had a tattoo. So they wanted a tattoo. Sure. Like their favorite singer, mm-hmm. artist, drummer, whatever. And... He became famous tattooing. So tattooing has this weird kind of sacred quality to it. It, it. There's a lot of a lot of the techniques and a lot of the drawing style and a lot of certain things are secret. Oh, okay. Like machine building. Mm. Like the way tattoo machines are built. You don't know how that works. No, I do not. I do. <laughs> I'm not allowed to tell you. Interesting. And is that like an in stone in your contract thing or that's understood that's understood you do not reveal that's this. understood you don't talk about that magician's code stuff yeah interesting yeah there's secrets i mean the same way that you know fine craftsmen fine woodworkers and stuff don't talk about the the intricacy of making a perfect dovetail when building a table sure partly because not everybody needs to know how to do that and you you may not want an amateur woodworker to know your technique for building a dovetail. Yeah. Because he's probably going to botch it. <laughs> or he might end up being better than you. Who knows? But you don't talk about it. But uh, Lyle Tuttle died last year. Oh, damn. He died in March. So wh- when was that heyday? Was that 70s, 80s? So, yeah, he started. He, he was on uh, the Rolling Stone cover in October 1970. Okay. So there was a big pop- There was a big like boom of popularity in that time. 
And then in the 90s and early 2000s, tattooing became more and more mainstream. Mm. And then here we are in 2020, and just about everybody you know has a tattoo. Pretty much. Which I'm fine with that. Yeah. A lot of people say, you know, that tattooing is about to go underground again. Interesting. It's going to go backwards as, like the fad as time goes on. Yeah. And it may. The fad may pass. Mm. I don't believe it will, though. I really don't. I only see it becoming more and more and more popular. Do, do people who think it's going to go underground again have any reasoning? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know on that. I imagine some of them may hope that it goes underground again. Maybe. To feel special. Maybe. They're, they're, I feel like some of those guys that think that are maybe a little dated in their yeah. thinking. They may have reason. I mean, you know, a lot of those guys that say stuff like that have been tattooing for a long time. Mm-hmm. And when they started, it was more or less an underground thing. Yeah. Now, if we hit a economic depression or recession again, which we are scheduled to in the near future, yeah. save your money, buy gold. Well, I mean, it, anything in life has ups and downs. It's oh, a yeah. wave. When you do get into economic hard times, things that are frivolous, that are non-necessary for your ultimate well-being and survival, get, get tossed aside. Mm-hmm. Tattooing is one of those things. It is. I understand that. Yep. And I'm aware of that. That's why I save money. <laughs> and I keep money in my savings account for when, you know, you have a busy season and a slow season mm-hmm. during the year. And you have to prepare for those things. Yeah. But I don't know about anything becoming underground again. Yeah, I, I also wonder, since it is some of the, I guess, old guard of tattooing who would uh, who would be claiming it'll go underground again, maybe that's not... It, it's kind of unfair of me to say that they want it to be that way. Even, you know, some they they might, might want it to be that way. I don't yeah. know. Maybe they want to return to the heyday of doing whatever they wanted. Exactly. But uh, it's also entirely possible that they've been around long enough to, th- to see fads pass, and they mm-hmm. want to prepare themselves for it's not always going to be this good. Even if it might be, it's nice to be prepared. Right. Right. And there's there are all these patterns with everything. There's patterns in style. Mm-hmm. So, like, different style. I mean, the beauty of it is that old school... American traditional, old school Japanese will never go away. It right. will never go, and to that, tribal tattooing will never go away. <laughs> I hate it so much. <laughs> I hate doing it. Oh, but it's it's so boring. It's like mowing grass. Interesting. It's like just mowing grass with somebody's arm. It's some just pattern? Black. Interesting. Just black. Do you know the, anyone who feels strongly in the opposite? Like it, there's, there's actually a dude that has the same name as me. Both? He, he works. No, not both. Names. Okay. <laughs> His name is Chris Higgins. Ah. And he has been doing tribal tattoos for 20 years. Mm-hmm. On his, I, I think his Instagram is Chris Higgins and Company or Chris Higgins Tattoo, something like that. All he does is tribal. Mm-hmm. 24 hours a day, seven days a week for 20 years. That's all he's been doing is black. And he's happy doing it and his clients are happy and his work is fabulous. Mm-hmm. I don't personally like doing tribal, but you can look at the tattoo and say, that's solid, that's smooth. Mm-hmm. The design complements the, the wearer's body. The lines are very clean. The color is very solid. Mm. All that stuff, all the technical parts, even though if I don't really enjoy the style, he nailed it. 100% he nailed it. Right. I don't en- really enjoy doing color realism either. It's not really something that I do. I've done it a couple times ever, and I don't really enjoy it. I know some artists that absolutely hate doing the style that I do. Yeah. Different tastes. Mm-hmm. Sort of side question, I guess, leading into a different topic. There, so you have like the chair where you work. Mm-hmm, my booth. Yeah, and in your booth, there's like 
your slate of drawings. There's a term for that, right? Like your, your designs. Flash. Thank you. Flash. I not remember what that was called. Flash is the word. So uh, is that part of the coming up process to develop your Flash? Now, Flash is, Flash is a weird thing because the times have changed and people want custom work. Yes. More people want custom work than people that don't want custom work. Mm-hmm. A lot of people get on, I hate to say this, a lot of people get on Pinterest and they see something that they like and they see something that they think looks interesting and they say, that's what I want. Right. And they bring their phone mm-hmm. into the shop with the image and they say, how much for this one? And you say, where do you want to put it? All my wrist, $100. Mm-hmm. Those are those pork chops. Those are no, those shop gotcha. minimum tattoos. Those are the ones. Mm-hmm. I don't. At this point, I really don't ask people that much sure. about the designs. I do know some designs I shouldn't do, you know, because they have connotations. I with, see. I you see. know. Various groups. Various, certain organizations have mm-hmm. symbols, and sometimes they walk into the professional establishment, and they say, hey, man, I want to get this weirdly specific thing that mm-hmm. it has to look just like this. Why does it have to look just like that? Hmm, I may or may not be associated with a certain organization. Mm-hmm. You have to go somewhere else, dude. I'm not doing it. Nope. Not doing it. You may have to take up some stick and poke at my dude. Yeah. So, in doing your flash, flash designs are basically things that you've drawn that are your ideas that you want to do. Hmm. I've been doing a little bit more flash recently. It's one of my things in 2020 that I want to do more of hmm. is more little silly custom drawings you know some of them are fun some of them are kind of humorous some of them are just my version of a a classic image sure you can never draw too many roses no you know or pinup girls i'm trying to draw more pinup girls Mm -hmm. in 2020 because they're very challenging for me to draw Mm. i find a lot of difficulty in drawing them Mm -hmm. so i've been spending a lot more time i have this whole sketchbook that's gonna just be pinup girls sure because i want to get better at it Mm -hmm. and that's the only way to do it but everybody's flash is different. Some artists don't really ever draw flash because they don't really feel the need to. Sure. It's at one time there was the standard tattoo flash and it was called Cherry Creek. Cherry Creek Flash Company. They mm-hmm. made all the flash every you've seen the designs. If I'm sure you I am. if I showed you some some photos of Cherry Creek Flash designs, you've seen them. Mm-hmm. In every football stadium and trailer park in America, there is a there's one of those designs somewhere, and they're great. Yeah. They're silly. They're like, they're classic designs. Mm. Not all of them are very good. Some of them are really cheesy. Some of them are really bad, but they're great. Yeah. They're great because they are a time capsule for that time in history. Mm. Yeah, and that was kind of going to be my next question. For the people who don't develop their own Flash Obviously, you have a Cherry Creek kind of thing where it's just, these are the standard tattoos. Yes. That's fallen more out of style. Sure. Uh, Does a store ever have its own sort of flash, or is it always on an individual artist basis? Both, maybe. So our shop, when I very first started there, we had a whole wall that was just flash. Mm. Some of it was Cherry Creek flash. Some of it was, we didn't have any Mr. Flash machine. We had some Gilmani Flash. Gilmani's a famous tattoo artist. He's still living. Sure. And Flash Machine, is that a person? Mr. Flash Machine is a dude that draws. A, it may be one guy, it may be ten guys. <laughs> they draw all these designs, and then they sell them. Oh. Um, Sailor Jerry had Flash sheets. Ed sure. Hardy had Flash sheets. All the major guys, one of the things that you could do to make money is you would draw some designs and then have them printed mm-hmm. on standard size 
which I think is 18 by 24 mm -hmm. is the standard flash sheet size. And you can fit, depending on the size of the flash, maybe five designs or eight designs mm -hmm. or 20 small designs sure. on one sheet. And you, show, you sell that sheet for a dollar. Mm. And then you contact every tattoo shop in the United States and you say, I just came out with some new flash. It's got some original, exciting designs. This is the flash that makes the cash a dollar a sheet. And there's a salesmanship. And they say, send me one for a dollar. Sure. And they send it to you rolled up in a newspaper tube. And you put it up and you made a dollar. And you contacted three million shops and you made three million dollars. You know, guys made tons of money making flash way back in the day, allegedly. Allegedly. Now, people want custom stuff. Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't come in with you know, to look at the flash and yeah. say, I want that one. I have a patch of skin I would like to not see again. Let's see what I want to put on it. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> I, You know, I did tattoo. It wasn't Cherry Creek. I forget what it was. I tattooed a dragon off of a flash thing, and it was this guy that he had been in before that night. It was a Friday night, I remember distinctly, because I was in my apprenticeship, and I wasn't really supposed to be doing tattoos any bigger than a hand. Mm-hmm. And he wanted this big dragon from his elbow to his wrist. Oh, damn. His whole forearm on the outside of his forearm, not the inside, the outside. And he, he pointed at the, the design, the Cherry the cherry Creek Flash Dragon, whatever it was. I'm sure I could find it online mm -hmm. if I Googled deep enough. He said, I want that one. I'll be in tomorrow at noon. He was drunk. <laughs> I didn't believe him. Yeah. But I said, all right, dude, tomorrow at noon, I'll put you on my calendar. And I put him on my calendar. Guess who shows up? <laughs> you... I would have bet if I had a hundred dollars that time in my life, I would have bet a hundred dollars that that dude was never going to show up. I would never sure. see. I would never see him again for as long as I lived. I imagine that's nope. not an uncommon occurrence. He came back in. <laughs> he came back in, and he was excited to see the line drawing of that dragon. That that is a man living his life who has he made a drunk decision and, and said then, yes and then said yes to it while sober. That is a man making bold bold moves. And it took me forever sure. to do that tattoo because I wasn't, it was, I, it wasn't beyond my skill level, mm. but it was out of my comfort zone. And big. And big. Yeah. And it had a lot of color transitions and it had a lot of, you know, it had black and gray shading in some parts and then it had color work in other parts mm. and it was this weird mix and I really wasn't ready for it and I was nervous and Karen said, well, he said he wanted you to tattoo him. So, uh, you know, you better tattoo him. <laughs> I was like, I don't even know. I've never done a tattoo this big. How big do I, what do I charge? She's like, ah, 250 whatever, send it. I did it. He loved it. And I bumped into him last year at gas station next to my house. All right. Guess what tattoo still looks great? <laughs> that one. There we go. Yes, Flash has fallen out of favor, is what I'm saying. Sure. And, and I imagine a lot of that is because, like, and that was kind of my question when you talk about the, the guys with famous recognizable styles. I mean, Sailor Jerry has a rum, for goodness sake. Yeah, that's just his name. Yeah. That's just his it name. Is I mean, like, Ed Hardy, everybody knows Ed Hardy from those really ugly jeans sure. and T-shirts and stuff. Don Ed Hardy, he's still living. He's a fabulous artist. Hmm. He's a he's an excellent black and gray tattoo, or not black and gray, uh, American traditional tattoo artist. And he set up one of the very first in California, I want to say it was in Los Angeles, he set up one of the very first ever appointment-only tattoo shops. Huh where it was just going to be his custom work, and he was very much influenced by Japanese style of tattooing. And he had his own distinct style of drawing, and he was an art school dropout. He studied graphic design hmm. and dropped out. 
And I may be wrong on that too, but I do know he went to college studying fine art and he just turned to a life of tattooing. So he had his own private studio and he was one of the first guys to ever do that. And I think it was him and maybe like three other guys working and they made bank. Hmm. And eventually, you know, once you get well known enough and famous enough with anything, companies want to put your name on stuff. Right. Once you become well known enough and famous enough, you and become I- a brand. Iconic enough, you become a brand. Yeah. And I really think that Ed Hardy should not have done that. He shouldn't have allowed that company to plaster his name and designs all over random stuff. But <laughs> at the same time, if it was me, and they said, "Hey, Ty, we're going to write you this check with an obscene amount of money on it." We're going to put your signature on some pants. And you're like, how much money? I'm going to write my signature four or five times. Y'all pick the one you like the most. <laughs> butts across America. Yeah, just butts across America with my name on them, my goofy little signature. The, the main thing is supporting yourself and running your own business and, yeah. and supporting yourself as an artist. You want to be able to have food on the table. Mm-hmm. And the type of people that are tattoo artists are the type of people that cannot work a normal job. I lost my mind <laughs> trying to work regular jobs, doing landscaping. Yeah. Warehousing. Where, doing warehouse work, cleaning. You know, when I was a teenager in the apartment, not the apartment, the condo complex that my parents used to live in, in the summer when I wasn't old enough to go get a job, I would go and I would clean the old people's houses mm. and clean out their garages and stuff. And yeah. I'd be like, hey, uh, I'll clean it for, you know, 50 bucks. Let me clean your garage. I need, and I would clean it a few hours and they'd give me 50 bucks. Mm-hmm. And I hated it. <clears throat> But I needed the money. Yep. So that's what tattooing really comes down to for a lot of people is it's you need to support yourself somehow. Mm -hmm. That being said, the kind of people that tattoo are not the kind of people that can work a normal job. And once you start tattooing, you never want to go back. Hmm. You never want to go back to a regular job. Never. If you put me in a grocery store and told me I had to bag groceries, I'd choke somebody with the bag. (laughs) I cannot imagine going back to working in a warehouse sure I cannot imagine working at a gas station i can't can't do it mm. so you do anything you can i think to stay tattooing and if that means doing a bunch of drawings and selling them whatever some tattoo artists way back when would and some still do uh there was a guy that came in that got a um he had a big piece on the saw on his side mm. and it was like a very classic 1980s it was like a like a chick from a hair metal band. Nice. Right? So she's got on like the super short jean shorts mm-hmm. and the leather jacket, like pinup girl style. And she's standing in this kind of like power pose with her legs in a V, like standing up like tall and strong. And she has a panther on a chain and she has the chain wrapped around her arm and her hand on her hip, like really powerful right. pose. And he had this huge on his side, like mm-hmm. from armpit to hip. <laughs> but he got it done in the early 80s for this guy and he traded him some heads for a motorcycle for the tattoo that's awesome. at the time that motorcycle part was probably like a 300 hundred dollar part sure and he traded for three hours of tattoo work for it <laughs> and that's just how it was mm-hmm. it's uh you know oh i need this thing i need a set of wheels for my car right i need i need to get my car repainted or whatever hey man let me work on your sleeve and I'll just bite the bullet on the cost of my materials mm-hmm. if you paint my car for me. Yeah, sort of or tr- swapping lifestyle barter, bits. Barter trade yeah. system. That doesn't really have it that but much But for anymore. coolness. But for cool stuff, yeah. yeah. You know, I need some heads <laughs> for my motorcycle. That's I awesome. need X, Y, and Z. 
But in terms of uh, the sort of death of the standard Flash, would that? I assume that is because of like the ease of access to see any tattoo design that has ever existed. I think, yeah, I think it's because of the internet. To internet, the internet has been both absolutely incredible and then absolutely detrimental. I think in 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 two ways, depending on what your view is. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of those old old school guys really hate the advent of mm-hmm. the internet and Pinterest and Instagram and stuff like that. Like some, some of the best, best, best artists that you've ever seen, tattooers, don't use social media at all. Right. Just don't. And that's because they are subscribed to the old belief that all you need to do is do good tattoo work. Right. That's it. Mm-hmm. You just need to do good tattoos. And the work will come and the work will come. And, the work be will come. Like, and that's, mm-hmm. that's still true. Yeah. That's still true 100%. But, I don't see why you wouldn't take advantage of the great hive mind that is the internet. Yeah, the flip side being that you will get more people interested in getting tattooed for the first time. Right. Probably. I'd like to see the, I don't know if you know this, uh, the statistic on like, if you get one tattoo, you're more likely to get X number of more tattoos. Like, if there's sort of a... a oh, there's got to be... Yeah, like a gateway for, for of once you have your first. Yeah, once you get one, you just can't stop. Right. What was your first tattoo, if you don't mind me asking? First tattoo I got was a black and gray rose on my right leg, just above my knee. Hmm. I can't show it to you without taking my pants off. I don't know if you want that. Meh, later. Uh, <laughs> wow, bold. <laughs> um... And then I got a big, from the same artist, I got a big devil head on the back of my left leg. Mm-hmm. And then it's just been rock and roll since then. And if I remember correctly, you have some manner of saint on the other leg? Yeah, I have uh, uh, St. Thomas on yeah. my right leg. Was that the same artist? No, it was a different artist. Gotcha. And then since then, I've gotten tattooed, not like super heavily, but I've gotten a bunch of tattoos since then. Have you practiced on yourself? I've tattooed myself once. Hmm. Horrible decision. Should not have done that. <laughs> Interesting. Because I feel like I've heard from other sources that that is how some people practice. Yeah, some people do. A lot of people do. I, that guy from Scotland hmm. had one of his whole thighs, which is a bunch of random designs that he had done on himself. Just crossed his leg and go to town. Yeah. Yeah, damn. Pretty much. <laughs> which is brutal, but yeah. some people do that. Some people don't mind. There are some uh, there's some really weird artists out there that are into like heavy black work stuff. There's a dude, he lives in Arizona. His name is Unknown Unknown. He blacked out his gums. Oh wow! Tattooed his own gums. Sure. Yeah. Whatever, bro. <laughs> Hit it. Do you do 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 whatever. Have you ever done white ink? Yeah, it's a horrible idea. <laughs> it's such a horrible idea. I had a client, and the only reason I did it is because it was a dude I used to work with. It was his wife. Mm. I tattooed him. I did. If I remember correctly, I did. I think his kids' names with like some angel wings hmm. and some clouds and stuff around it. And his wife was impressed by my work and wanted me to do this kind of floral mandala style design. Sure. But she just wanted white. And wow. I tried, I fought her so hard over it. I told her it's, it's a really bad idea. It's going to age like garbage. Hmm. It's not going to hold up over time. You're going to be unhappy with it. Yeah. I promise. I'm going to do this to the best of my ability and you are still going to not be happy. What happens when white engages? It falls out. I'll what? show you. I'll show you. I don't think I want to see that. Huh. Um, you have to have black. Huh. You you need to have, you have to have black. It is necessary. It is the skeleton of the tattoo. Hmm. It is what holds the tattoo together. And it's because your body cannot process out black ink effectively. Interesting. 
So that's why color fades, but you still always have the outline. Yes. Okay. So you that's one of the beauty, the, the one of the most beautiful things. That's the beauty of old school tattooing mm. and traditional Japanese. There's plenty of black. <laughs> it stays. Sure. There's a saying in the tattoo community, bold will hold. Mm-hmm. It does. It's because it tried and true. It works. Interesting. It works. There are ways you can get around it, though. There are rules. Now, like in, in the typical mindset of the old school tattoo artist, tattooist, tattooer, whatever word you want to use, line, shade, color. Mm. Those are the rules. If you stick to that, your tattoos will hold up. They will. Clean line work, which requires technical proficiency with drawing and all that stuff, and proper lining for tattooing, you know, a certain grip, there's a certain technique, knowing how to run your machines a certain way, certain mm. needle groupings, all that. All the technical stuff. So long as you have black lines and black shading, your design will work. As long as you do it big enough. There are a lot of moving parts in it. But you can get away from that. That's how you have artists that do these beautiful black and gray portraits. They don't have any lines. Yeah. And they look beautiful. And they hold up just fine over time. Oh, wow. They hold up. They hold up. For the listener, I am being shown some tattoos on yeah. uh, Ty's forearm. Yeah, so it's my. Uh, this is a portrait of Tom Waits. Oh, wow. One so of my favorite. Is. This is a young Tom Waits. He's Indeed. in his 20s. He wasn't all ugly yet. What yeah. Did he sound the same? Uh, not quite. Okay. Not quite. His voice has gotten much more rough as time goes on. I have Lemmy Kilmeister from Motorhead. Ah, yes. The Ace of Spades. Indeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have both of those guys, and there are no lines. There's I- no lines. Imagine them doing a duet. Oh, God. He's so rough. <laughs> He's so rough. It would. So um, there are ways around it, but that requires a lot of practice and a lot of technical skill. Sure. Now, if that's what you're passionate about as an artist and you want to be, you know, Vic Vivid and you want to do these really beautiful color tattoos Mm -hmm. that have no lines. Like Vic Vivid does these and does some of the most absolutely beautiful painterly color realism and black and gray realism tattoos that I think I've ever seen in my whole life. Mm. To have the name Vivid... (laughs) <laughs> you have to have some kind of technical proficiency yeah. in vivid color. But this is, you know, that's a style. You have all these different artists all, and there, there are more distinct separate styles of tattooing now than there ever have been ever. Sure. And some of them are crazy. <laughs> trash polka. That's a style. That's the actual Wait, name. You said trash polka? Trash polka. What? I'm so, so, dying so, to know what that so, means. So trash polka is basically... Depending on the artist, everybody does a little bit different. It's a lot of very technically proficient, smooth black and gray work okay. with a weird abstract black and red kind of scattered throughout the image. Huh. You have to factor in a lot of different things. Yeah, melding the black and gray realism mm-hmm. with the abstraction. And then Definitely difficult. And then having it look wild mm-hmm. but still be compositionally sound. Right. And then how do you put that on a body? Yep. On a round piece of flesh. Yeah. So it's, it's very challenging. And easy enough, that's easy enough if it, that's just the one tattoo that's going in that area. Not to mention if they have other tattoos on the arm. How do you make right. this all fit together in a way that doesn't look messy? Yeah. Because you want your tattoos to complement the other tattoos that are already there mm-hmm. and to complement the wearer. Yeah, the, the collage of the sleeve. Right. God, that's insane. There's a lot of moving parts. Mm-hmm. It's challenging. So... Uh, mentioned a few times at this point uh, traditional Japanese tattooing mm-hmm. so how traditional are we talking I don't do uh, 
a lot of guys don't do the traditional what they call tibori, which literally translates to by hand. Okay. Where they have the bamboo stick with the handmade needles on it. Gotcha. They make handmade ink, handmade sumi, and they stretch with one hand. With me, I'm left-handed, so I would stretch with my right hand mm-hmm. to make the skin tight, and then they use the left hand almost like you would use a pool cue. Wow. And they just jab your skin with it. And, it, and it's it's silent. Yeah. There's no machine. Tattoo machines are loud. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's like a doorbell. And it, bzzz, it makes a noise. Hmm. Doing it by hand process, they traditionally they lay out a, like a, they make a sterile space in a room. Yeah. And they do it on the floor. That's hmm. the traditional way. And they don't do it on the floor in like, it's a dirty way on the floor. It's all medically sanitary. It's yeah. all sterilized. Everything's clean. But they don't tattoo on a, on a bed or a table. Like you, like a professional tattoo table. They they set up a, a kind of sterilized cot on the floor. Sure, and they just go at it with the <laughs> God, it's insane. With the with the bamboo pole, with the tabori pole. Right. So um, beyond the the sort of method, but in terms of the style, which the uh, style which you do some of it, right? Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. It, what would you say are um, sort of major stylistic differences between a traditional Japanese and American traditional? Traditional Japanese stuff is typically very big. Okay. Very big. In the the true, true sense of traditional Japanese stuff, and I'm not 100% schooled on all of this. I'm I'm knowledgeable on it, and I'm educated as mm-hmm. far as some things go, but the larger scheme of it, I don't, I don't understand everything fully. And sure. I've been studying a lot recently, I've been reading a lot recently, and there's still a lot. It's like every time I learn something... I, I suddenly learned that there's 10 new things that I have to learn. The Wikipedia hole. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's like that. I Wikipedia hold my whole life. Anyway, there are a typical set of themes, you know, so you have, you know, the typical things that you would think of. You have lions, mm-hmm. you have foo dogs. Foo dogs are lions, really, technically. Right. Tigers. Oni, imi- probably. Images of, yeah, oni. You have ancient stories from, like, Shinto. Like from the, the native religion of Japan, the Shinto, you have images of Hanya, images from like the no the no mask in O H. Yeah, maybe it's pronounced Na or no, no, it's no. I don't know. You have images like that. You and it, it's tailored to the wearer. And traditionally, with Japanese style tattooing, the artist picks what you get. Huh. And the artist will do several interviews with you. Where right. They'll take you out to dinner. And they'll they'll learn about you and they'll talk to you mm-hmm. and everything in the tattoo is very very symbolic. I everything want... everything has a meaning. Yeah. Every object has a meaning. I want to watch this anime. Yeah. <laughs> Just like a slice of life anime about a traditional Japanese tattoo artist. Yeah. So every image has a meaning. Hmm. So chrysanthemums and like chrysanthemums have a, a certain meaning. Cherry blossoms have a certain meaning. Maple leaves have a certain meaning. The mm-hmm. Japanese maple, the red, yeah. looks almost like a pot leaf, but it's red. Mm-hmm. Um, the Hanya represents the the spirit of a jealous female demon, huh. essentially, kind of a, a, a malicious feminine divine energy. Sure. The peacock represents the uh, divine female energy. Hmm. The dragon represents divine male energy, right. fertility, virility, all these things. I want to say it is, it's not chrysanthemums. It starts with a C, though. Can't remember the name of the flower. But traditionally, it is a flower that is thrown into the grave hmm. while you're being buried. 
and they'll throw these flowers into your grave. So some of these guys, particularly the Yakuza, mm. Japanese gang members, yeah. they'll get these things tattooed on them, these flowers, the, the graveyard flower, basically, saying that if I die away from home, I already have my flowers to mm. be buried. Yep. And there's a lot. It's kind of grim, but that's part of the it's part of the thing. For all the Japanese cultural scholars out there, that's what we call mono no oware. Yeah. Spicy. <laughs> it's a sort of general Japanese cultural uh, concept of, I'm going to get this pretty wrong. One of the ways I've heard it described by one of my professors in college was uh, sort of the awareness of feeling or the awareness of impermanence. So it's this, uh, it's always embodied by cherry blossoms because mm-hmm. they bloom briefly and then fall mm-hmm. quickly. And you know that that happens. Yes. And you're aware that that happens. Exactly. And it's once you see them blooming, oh, it'll only be a few weeks before they fall. Precisely. But it's the yeah. treasuring of the beauty while it lasts. So right. the the awareness of the Yakuza saying, particularly in the life I live, I, w- I may well die in a way that I will not get a sort of good traditional burial. So I will rectify carry, carry that situation. Carry the with me yes. for when I'm killed away from home or if I die away from home. So, yeah, you get... Again, and there's just so many rules Mm. in that style. But, uh, yes, typically the images are very large. They're very flat. They are set. The images are are set with bold black lines. The color is done in a way that is pretty predictable and pretty consistent through the whole style. And then they're almost always set on a dark background. Mm. So rolling clouds, thunderclouds with lightning that cuts through the main image. The typical like crashing waves, what we in the tattoo world called finger waves, mm. because they look like curled fingers. Right. Big, almost like hokusai's wave, which yeah. is cool because I'm the microphone sitting on a hokusai book. I did do that. That's exciting. Yes. Yeah, so I the, needed a wide book to put yeah, the microphone on. The the hokusai wave, that style of big, smooth curve with all these little finger appendages popping off the top of it. Yeah. You see that in traditional Japanese tattooing, mm. and that could be used as a border to cut off the line for the end of your sleeve, or that could be used to, if you have a koi fish, you don't want the koi fish to sit flat on top of the background. You want it to interact with the background in some way. So you'll have some of the waves will be crashing over the fish, Mm -hmm. or the fish may be coming out or into a wave and then back out of a wave. Right. But it's still flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that might be one of the most fascinating things to me about people who get heavily tattooed is Mm -hmm. the idea that they're using themselves as an ever-evolving canvas Mm -hmm. like you know and if you got a tattoo at one point that there's a internet personality i follow who he got a black flag tattoo because everyone everyone in the punk scene gets a black flag tattoo yeah you love black flag exactly and at a certain point he didn't care about black flag anymore so he got it covered over to be something else Mm -hmm. the the fact that yeah it's permanent but it's not that permanent yeah it's not that permanent there are ways around it but Everything you do in life is in, in a way permanent. All the choices you have made. So, like choosing to do things on your body in the form of tattooing, it can be a visual manifestation of how you live. Yep. In yep. the in the ever evolving work of art that is your life. Right. So, the the you mentioned earlier about have I tattooed myself? Right. I said I have. It was a bad decision. <laughs> I regret doing it. I will never cover that tattoo. Sure. Never. That is a piece of who I was at that time. I remember the day. It was April 7th, 2017. There we go. I remember. I remember the day. Mm-hmm. And I regret doing it. But I'll never cover it. 
Because now you know. Because now I know. Yep. And it's, and it's a point, it's a it, point of reference. Yes. <laughs> and people ask me what it is because they're like, what, what is that thing on your ankle? Shut up. <laughs> and I try to explain it to them and that just makes more questions. Right. So I, I have greatly enjoyed learning so many things about tattoos, but I do uh, like to ask about things other than people's work oh, yes, because there, there's stuff other than oh, yeah. your job. There's more, there's, yeah, there's more to me than just tattooing, but Indeed. it is most of me. And it will probably be most of this podcast. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, <laughs> But um, I did want to ask about the exotic avian sanctuary. Yeah. I didn't know we had one of those in yeah. Nashville. Yeah. I love the exotic avian sanctuary. The uh, East, E-A-S-T, mm. exotic avian sanctuary of Tennessee. Gotcha. Run by a fabulous woman named Kim Hanna. Mm. The place is on her property. Oh, wow. So essentially she lives in a house mm. and then the sanctuary is in this very large building within a stone's throw of her house. Mm. So she's always there. Right. And... These animals are her life. I think that she'd be proud to hear me say that. And this is somewhere you volunteer? I volunteer here. Uh, I volunteer at the sanctuary every Monday, mm. usually at noon. That's just when I go in. And I'm the lead volunteer on Mondays. Mm-hmm. But usually the volunteer coordinator is also there. So really she's the lead, and my lead title is completely titular. Right. What we do is we we care for exotic birds that have either been lost and found exotic birds that have been taken away from their owners for negligence or abuse or whatever or say for example some exotic birds live almost 80 or 90 years in captivity they live a very long time wow what is that compared to the wild in the what it depends on the species oh absolutely um but in the wild 20 or 40 years depending it's like dude a raccoon lives an average of three to five years in the wild, mm-hmm. up to 30 in captivity. Wow. Wild, right? Yeah. It's crazy. So Take care of some animals. Yeah, take care of your animals. So what happens is people get an exotic bird, and they think, wow, it's going to be so cool to have it. And the novelty wears off very quickly. Sure. Very quickly, because <laughs> they're really loud, right? and they're very destructive, and they're very expensive. It's like having a two-year-old. Forever. Forever. Yeah, for who might 80, outlive you? For 80 years, that in many cases does outlive you. Right. We have a couple of birds there that outlive their owners. Hmm. You know, some nice couple buys a bird. You know, they, they think about, you know, we're going to wait to have kids. Let's get a pet. And they get uh, exotic bird. And they care for the exotic bird and love it for 35 years. And hmm. then they die in their 70s. Mm-hmm. What happens to the bird? Right. It ends up at the sanctuary. Hmm. And I'm not as good with the birds as Kim is, she's like the bird whisperer. It's sure. incredible. She, you know, even aggressive birds that are, you know, some some of these animals have. It's sad to say, but some of them have been neglected and they've been abused. Yeah, and they don't really react well to new people because they're nervous and they're scared. And the last time they saw someone look like me, it was mean to them. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of cages that like I can't go in because either the birds don't respond well to me or they. Maybe I look like somebody that they used to know or something. Yeah. Almost like with shelter dogs. Absolutely. It's like, like it's if, like, oh, don't go over next to Rex. He's scared of men. Yeah. Or like he doesn't like people wearing hats because a dude with a hat messed him up. Right. Yeah. So same thing with the birds. Mm-hmm. And they are they're incredibly intelligent, incredibly social, very aware. They're they're really smart. Yeah. It's freaky how smart they are sometimes. <laughs> And then when they discover something new, you can see when they're when they're thinking. You can see the wheels turning, you know. Mm. 
they'll be really active and then they'll stop and just stare at you. It's like, oh, what are you about to do? <laughs> I know that look. So. Clever guy. It's a, yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. It's challenging. Mm-hmm. You learn a lot about yourself with the animals. But I love it. I love it. It's a day a week that I'm happy to work for free. Sure. And I never thought in my whole life. I, I've always worked so hard for money, mm-hmm. to have money for that security. And I never thought that I would give up you know, part of a, a day's work for free, for nothing, for right. no no financial compensation at all. Mm-hmm. For heart compensation. Yeah, for, for the compensation of my love of animals. The, the, the milk of avian kindness. Yes. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, yeah. Any specific species that, that one should Google to see, like, the, the kind of birds you work with? Obviously, the kind blue, of uh, blue and gold macaws. Ooh. Um, umbrella cockatoos, mm. Moluccan cockatoos. We do have a hyacinth macaw, which is the largest species of flying macaw. Hmm. Uh, I can That's one of those rooms I can't go into. Sure. And his name is Wizard, and he's huge. Okay. He's, I mean, his whole body's about this big. Woo. And his tail would, if I was holding him at about how, like, waist high, mm-hmm. his tail would touch the floor. Wow. His beak, I'm not joking, is maybe three inches long three and a half inches long and it's curved Mm -hmm. and he can crack a macadamia nut no sweat (laughs) no sweat not even trying and he's with some a lot of the it seems like with a lot of the female volunteers he has no trouble with Hmm. but some of the men he has a lot of trouble with interesting I don't know why yeah I don't know I don't know he uh, he doesn't like me at all though but I can't blame him he's maybe had a bad experience in the past but uh, there are some some rooms that I can do to clean. And when you clean the aviary, I mean, the aviaries are about the size of a little bit smaller than your living room. Sure. So you're in there with them. Yeah. While you clean. <laughs> you don't, like, take them out and put them in a cage or anything or let them out into a separate area. You're just in there with them. Mm-hmm. So sometimes when you're cleaning, you'll be dive-bombed. <laughs> have to clean more. And you have to clean a little bit more. Yeah. Or uh, if you go to a room that you routinely do, like for me, there's a certain room that I do first every Monday mm-hmm. just because I like routine so that that's the room I do first and one of the birds it insists on flying and landing on my shoulder and just being with me the whole time I clean mm-hmm. which is sounds great except for that it's kind of a hassle because now you have to work around the animal <laughs> right and she's trying to like bite the broom handle mm-hmm. or trying to bite my hat and yeah, take it's my play hat time. off and it's playtime and she doesn't know that I'm trying to work and mm-hmm. I will play with you as soon as I'm done cleaning yeah I have to clean you know, these rooms, and I have to sweep and mop and do this and that and the other, whatever, and check the food and check the water bowls and, and do all this stuff. And she's like, no, I want to play right now. I want to play right now. So she figured out that the bird I'm talking about, her name is Una, and she's about, I think, two years old, three years old, something. Umbrella cockatoo, so she's mm. very much like a teenager and <laughs> very active and, like, very hyperactive, and she's really smart. Yeah. She figured out that she bites my hat it breaks the plastic and it makes this crunchy sound and she really likes it so she would fly and land on my arm and then just like bite my hat really fast mm-hmm. which is scary to have a beak that's that sharp that with that you know has that much power yeah. f- coming towards your face really fast mm-hmm. it's a little nerve wracking it is in eye trajectory yeah and it's a, she's essentially going for my dominant eye which mm-hmm. I don't like but then she'll bite the hat and I'll tell her to stop and I don't want to reach my hand up there because like what if she bites my finger or whatever? But mm. she wouldn't do that. She's she's very sweet. 
Is there any, this is very sidetracked, is there any correlation between hand dominance and eye dominance? Because you mentioned earlier you're left-handed. I am also left-handed, yeah. and you're right-eye dominant, I'm, right I'm also right-eye dominant. Yeah, so uh, do you know if you shoot left or right-handed? Like shoot a pistol? I think I've only shot a, I've shot a few guns, but it was on one occasion. Okay. I think I shot left, but I know I'm right-eye dominant. Okay. Some people are like that. Hmm. Some people are like that. They're left. One of my friends is a very, very good shot. Um, he is right-handed and left-eye dominant. Hmm. And I am... No, he's right-handed and left-eye dominant. Yeah. I am left-hand dominant and right-eye dominant. Same. But I shoot right-handed. Okay. I can shoot left-handed, which tends to freak out some guys at the gun range. I'm sure. Because I'll burn a magazine right-handed and then drop the mag, switch hands, put another magazine in, and rack it, and then shoot left-handed. It's like if you did the Princess Bride sword fight scene, but in John Wick. Yeah, kind of, yeah. <laughs> So that kind of, that's that's a thing. I can't, I don't know if I'd shoot a rifle left-handed. I don't know if I'd be able to. Mm. I think my form, because I'd have to use my left eye. Yeah. And I don't think I'd be able to. Mm-hmm. And with my astigmatism, I don't, I don't know. Science is weird. But science is definitely weird. So hand dominance. And that being said, though, parrots are usually left foot dominant. Hmm. They stand on the right foot. And then if they're trying to eat something that's too big to just hold in their mouth and eat, yeah, they'll stand on one foot and hold it with their on foot, so their left foot typically is the dominant one. It seems like. It's like Muppets. Yeah, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. You know the thing about all, like almost all Muppets are left-handed? I never noticed that. No. Yeah, because typically the puppeteer is right-handed, so their dominant so hand using, is in the mouth. Yes, yeah, their dominant hand's in the mouth. That means they're using... The left hand the, for like the, the rod. Left, or, the left hand, yeah, for the, for the, the Muppet hand, mm-hmm. which will be the active hand, which would be their dominant, but it's actually the puppeteer's off hand. Right. That's fun. Mm-hmm. But I think there is some kind of correlation between left and right handedness and your dexterous hand and your strong hand. Wouldn't surprise me. But I don't know what that is. I'm not a scientist. No. I mean, it wouldn't surprise me if, like, if your brain knows this is the fine motor function hand, mm-hmm. let's do the things that might hurt me with, with the my, less motor function that hand. That being said, when I reach towards a bird that I've never interacted with before and I'm afraid they may bite, I do reach with my right hand. Because if they bite me on my tattoo hand, I can't make money. Nope. Bad times. Bad times. I think about that. <laughs> that being said, I've been bitten a, a handful of times. Sure. And it's it's always been pretty not that bad. Yeah. It's a warning shot, I'm sure. A lot of them, yes. Yeah. A lot of them are trying to hurt you. Mm-hmm. They're just... my first The first instance I had with a bite was completely by accident. And it was my fault. It's never the bird's fault no. if you get bitten. Much much like it's never really a dog's fault if you get bitten. Usually it's you doing something stupid. And I was sweeping, and I wasn't paying attention. I was sweeping and walking backwards while I was sweeping. Hmm. And I was getting closer and closer to this cage, and there's a bird on top of the cage. And the bird, I'm certain, if I turned around, the bird was probably making a threat display. Sure. Like wings out, like, hey, get away from me, give me some space. Mm-hmm. And I, because my back was to the bird, I couldn't see her. And she lunged forward and bit me right between my shoulder blades. Punched, punched a hole in my sweater. Ha. And she didn't really... I mean, she did bite me and leave a bruise, mm-hmm. but it wasn't that bad. It was uncomfortable, and it scared me, so I screamed. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not that bad. Mm-hmm. Some of the small birds, I've been bitten on the finger by a small bird. Yeah. Asking, you know, hey, is this bird friendly? Can I pet it? Whatever. He seems... The body learner to read their body language. Mm-hmm. And the body language seems like, hey, I'm being inviting. They'll put their head down, and their feathers get all fluffy. Yeah. And that means, like, I want you to scratch me. I want you to mm-hmm. put my head. And you do that, and you reach towards them, and then they'll 
snap up and bite you really fast because they're smart yes. and they get a kick out of doing that. <laughs> so I, I did the thing and I reached over and I kind of pet his head for a second and I said, will he step up? And whoever was in the room was like, I think he should. He steps up with me and I put my finger down and he just moves down and lashes onto my finger, <laughs> bites me. <laughs> and he got like the tough outer part where the, um, where the fingernail kind of, or not with the fingernail, but where the fingerprint transitions into the top part of your finger. Yeah. Sort of where the knuckle is. Mm-hmm. It's tough right there. So he didn't really hurt me, mm-hmm. but it did scare me <laughs> because he's maybe three inches tall. And if I jerked back, I'd sling him off the table. Uh, if he latched onto me, I'd throw him over my head by accident. <laughs> so funny, funny stuff. Just funny stuff like that happens at the bird sanctuary. I'm imagining like the, the meme with the bird who's reeled back and then what? Yeah. Yeah, the the <laughs> is it a sequel? I think it's a sequel. Yeah, like all the all the different uh, all the different memes. Uh, I don't know if you'll believe me, but uh, that actually does lead into my next uh, question. I wanted to ask memes. Yes. Mm-hmm. So just thinking about stuff to talk about. I'm a connoisseur of dank memes. I don't yeah. know if you know <laughs> I'm aware. Yeah, because we're friends on Facebook. Yeah. Um, yeah. The stuff I share is very tame. <laughs> I have a I have a folder. In my Facebook, because you mm. can save links on Facebook, and I have a folder of all of the best dank memes that I find. And I did this because I found a really funny meme, and that night I wanted to show my brother, and I couldn't find it. Yeah. No, the algorithm is oh. trash. If you oh. see something once, it goes, well, you moved on. It's gone. Yeah. So Ch- Cherry blossoms again. Yeah. So the cherry blossom of memes. <laughs> so what I do now is I save them. So I'm taking all these cherry blossoms, and I'm putting them in a bag, mm-hmm. essentially. You just Press them into your little uh, flower book into, of Facebook into my, memes. Yeah, into my dank, dank meme folder. So I've got a bunch on Facebook. I've got a bunch on that I just save onto my phone. Sure. Because um, I love to use them in conversations, especially when someone's having like a political argument on Facebook. Oof. And I, I have no... I love to jump in. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm so bad. There's tons of tag groups that you can use. Yes. There are a lot of uh, really silly memes that you can throw in. And... Typically, the more nonsensical, the more I love it. Mm-hmm. Like, this is one I found today. It's a, since for all the people listening, it's an image of two Roman soldiers, like two legionnaires, and uh, one of them has a mounted light machine gun, and the other one is feeding ammunition into the light machine gun, and it says, cheat activated. <laughs> it's just stupid stuff like that. <laughs> the more... Oh, goodness. The more of this that I can find, the happier I am. Sure. Um, but um, the thing I wanted to ask about in particular, um, you seem to be a, a fan of JoJo's memes. Oh, I love JoJo. Yeah. It, did, have you watched JoJo's? Or yeah. you just, okay. Yeah. I have yeah. started it. What What part are you watching? I uh, first. First. Okay. Part yeah. one. Okay. It doesn't. Most of the memes come from part three onward. Interesting. So part three is the. I would say part three is the Stardust Crusaders is what it's called. Mm-hmm. It is probably the most popular. Is that Jotaro? That's Jotaro. Okay. So part one is the origin story of Dio, the bad yeah. guy. And then it, so, so the, okay, let me try to backtrack here. So what the, the Jojo memes are famous for mm-hmm. is one Dio just being crazy because yeah. he is and stands. Yes. So stands don't show up until part three. I did wonder when that was going to be. Yeah, a thing. so that happens at part three because, uh-huh. and the guy that wrote it, Araki, mm-hmm. is his name. Araki started writing JoJo's Bizarre Adventure in the eighties. Yes, and he is still the sole writer 
since the eight for thirty something years. This it's not man, still running, is it? Like yes, the, it's the manga's still going. This still goes, man. So I haven't even read the, the manga. I, I should, but anyway, it started off. The whole thing is about the classic story of a battle between good and evil. Classic anime tropes. Yeah. And originally, if you, I don't know how far you in, but you know, do you know about Hamon? The, no. Okay. So Hamon is this like breathing technique, ancient. Oh yes, yes, yes. Ancient breathing technique that allows you to like focus your energy and do all these crazy attacks mm-hmm. and stuff like that and defense. And the more you practice Hamon, it keeps you at your body's ideal fitness. Mm. So there's a character named Lisa Lisa, which is yes, based on the song. Every, if you're wondering if something in JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is based on the song, the answer is yes. It's always based There's on the song. There's a character called Speedwagon. Yeah, yeah. And I forget his name's like Reginald Edward something. Something, So yeah. it's R-E-O, Speedwagon. Mm-hmm. It's hilarious. As it goes on, it does develop a kind of self-awareness yeah. where the, the show knows that it's completely over the top. It would have to. But um, originally, it's this breathing technique that allows you to have almost superhuman abilities. Mm. Anyway, it as the writing progresses and more parts of the story keep getting added, it goes from Hamon to stand users. It's such an unnecessarily complicated plot line. But basically, Dio gets a stand, so the other members of the Joestar family get a stand. Sure. So, for the listener who may be utterly confused, yeah. you would probably still be confused if you watched it, but for a, a level of reference, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure was an, uh, a manga started in the 80s, is apparently still going. Yeah. that um, came to prominence a few years ago after being a really... My understanding is that it was a big cult kind of thing. But it's a, a very convoluted story Unnecessarily of like... Multi- complex anime. Multi-generational insaneness. And if you've seen the JoJo's memes, which you have, you just don't know that they're JoJo's. Yeah, like the little that is what the sh- is Yes, that is what the show is like. Absolutely. It is... Uh, I have a bunch of them saved on here. I'm sure. There's a group on Facebook called people that are probably stand users <laughs> yes that's a good one it's great yeah and uh, stand is like their their yeah, power it's... manifested in a, a kind of another being and it's called a stand because they literally stand in front of them yeah it's like um i think the the show explains it as being it is your fighting spirit manifested in a physical form right but only stand users can see stands Interesting. I didn't know that. So, yeah, so only stand users can see stands, and that's how a lot of people get away with using their stands in public. Sure. Is because the average person can't see them. And in, in the beginning of part three, Jotaro is confused that he has a stand and he doesn't understand what it is. Mm-hmm. He doesn't know. And Jotaro's got, he's like the classic, like, anime bad boy. He's, like, really cocky and he's always cool under pressure mm-hmm. and whatever, and he dresses very stylish and whatever. It's it's super cheesy. Yeah. And the show knows it. That is the point. It's a really great show. Now, and that, there really aren't that many filler episodes. Yeah, that's one thing I remarked upon when I started it was I, I knew the reputation, mm-hmm. and it lives up to it, but it oh, is, yeah. it's a very well-made show yeah. if that's the kind of thing you want to watch. Yeah. The yeah, textures. If you're, if you're in, Yeah, if you're into the whole cheesy, mm-hmm. overly exposite, like the... My brother uses the word pageantry. Yes, absolutely. The, he said the pageantry of the show, <laughs> so over the top. Yep. So unnecessary. No, as classic. As someone with an English degree, watching the beginning of season or part one, it is literally a gothic novel in anime form, just mm-hmm. in how like absurd and like conniving everything is. Mm-hmm. And no, everyone feels so strongly, but they won't talk to one another about mm-hmm. anything. Uh, it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. In 
part one, I think that's where they introduced Dio. And I don't know how far you, if you've watched like a couple episodes. Literally one episode. You've watched one episode. So you've seen... Yeah, Dio has infiltrated the Joestar family. Yeah. And he's being... He's being a real meanie pants about it. But only only to Jonathan. Only Every, to Jonathan. He's the, the classic Heathcliff, you know, charming everyone except the person that he despises. Yeah. So that never goes away. Is he the one with the cherry? With the cherry? No, that's Kakuin. Okay. Noriaki Kakuin from part three. Gotcha. The, 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 that, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, that scene is funny. The reason that that scene is so well known is because there's an episode where the group is convinced that Kakuin's been possessed by an enemy stand <laughs> okay and he starts doing all this really weird stuff mm. and that's one of the things he does when he's possessed is he starts he does like the the weird licking the cherry thing yes so it's it's a it's such a weird show mm-hmm. have you given much thought to where jotaro's hat ends and his hair begins you know <laughs> <laughs> there's a running joke in the jojo community that araki forgot so it's, you know, if if this person's stand can do this, then why didn't they do that? If they did it in part three. Why mm-hmm. didn't they do it in part four? Or if the stand user can do this, or if Dio did that, then why didn't he do it again in this part? Or why didn't it, why did it not become relevant until this plot point or whatever? Right. And it's probably not brilliant writing. It's probably just that Iraqi forgot. Sure. So that, that How become, long have mm-hmm. you been writing on one series before you start to forget the incredibly small, minute details of your of the, very of strange the, involved very power long, system? Yeah. Oof. So there are a couple images where there are scenes in the anime where Jotaro's hat, and if you're a viewer and you don't know, if you look up Jotaro Kyujo on Google and you look at a picture of him from the anime, he, he wears a black hat and he mm-hmm. has like long black hair. And the way it's styled in the anime or in the manga is that his hat kind of fades into his hair mm-hmm. and there's no clear distinction. There's also a couple of panels from the show where his hat does not fade into his hair or where he's not wearing his hat. Right. It really is a really, really bizarre show. It's mm-hmm. called a bizarre adventure for a reason because it is bizarre. It's incredible. That's what it says on the tin. Yes. I meant to ask this a while ago, uh, back to some tattooing things. When, okay. we, when we were talking about um, uh, the machine is the term. Yes, for yes, a tattoo machine. If you learn anything from this podcast, Lyle Tuttle, who we spoke about earlier, yes. famously said that if you call the sacred instrument of tattooing a gun is to call your own mother a whore. <laughs> His awesome. words, not mine, but that's how important that is. Mm-hmm. It's a misnomer, I guess, in the in the technical sense of the, the term. Yeah. But it's a machine. Mm-hmm. It's a machine. The tattoo machine. The tattoo machine. So, um, have you built one? I like, built a mm, bunch of tattoo machines. So yeah. the one you, the one I use mm, every day, my liner. I, yeah. I built it. Yeah. Gotcha. I was trying to sort of mesh in my mind what that idea of like building your own sort of made me think of, and it's it put me somewhere in between like the the classic thing you always see in military films of like having to break down and put your gun back together again mm-hmm. over and over. Or like building your own lightsaber, sort of in between it these. Is, two yeah, things. it is. You're exactly right. It is the same. It is. Now, the very first machine that I ever built, it's from a. It's from Workhorse Irons, which mm. is a, a tattoo machine company. You cannot buy from their website unless you have a tattoo license, mm. and they will give you a phone number to call, where they'll read. You have to read them your license number, and if you can't come up with a license number, if they can't find it. They're not going to sell it to you. Is that a card or just a piece of paper on your booth? Piece of paper in your booth. Gotcha. Anyway, you 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 can 
build a tattoo machine literally from scratch, which I've never done one fully from scratch, where mm. you take the metal and weld it yourself <sighs> to build the machine and drill holes in it right. to fit your coils and hand wrap your coils and hand cut your springs. I didn't do all that. I'm <laughs> not I'm not Andy Seb. I'm not Soba. So the machine I built is a Soba pilot. Soba's the guy that he's a very well known machine builder. Mm. Soba is the machine that I got. Soba Pilot liner. I actually got a liner and a shader, and I built them both, but I never really used my shader. It was a hassle mm. doing it for the first time. I never thought that I'd have to learn how to solder <clears throat> to learn how to properly draw. Sure. But you do. Mm-hmm. You do have to learn that. It's great, though. I love that machine. Mm. I use it, I, like, every day. I use it. So I assume a liner is for line art. Yeah, uh, for sh- lining, making lines. Yeah. Shader would be for, like, color transition? For shading and color stuff. Now, there is... I'm very much subscribed to the belief that you need to have the right tool for the right job. Sure. So I have a whole drawer full of machine parts Mm. and machines and anytime somebody is like, hey man, do you want... Yes, I do want that. Give it to me. (laughs) Give it to me. So I have a a huge drawer full of machines. Yeah. And I have certain ones for certain things Mm -hmm. and I have certain ones for other things and I have certain machines that I use certain ways. So I've got like a large group liner and a fine group liner. I have a rotary machine, which is a bishop, bishop rotary that doesn't, it doesn't use coils, which is what makes the tattoo machine loud and give it that buzzing noise. Mm. So the machine is practically silent. It uses like a little motor to mm-hmm. push the needle up and down. So that, that's a difference. I've got a Franken machine that I built out of about nine other machines, which it started its life as a Danny Fowler time machine, is what it's called. I don't know. I don't even know how old the machine is. I think like 1998. Danny Fowler time machine that I've taken apart. I had to like file springs down to make it fit so that the machine would work right. And then I took the coils off of another machine and just like Franken Franken machined it together. Sure. And we call it the Eugene machine just because it's silly, mm-hmm. nonsensical. But it for a long time was my go-to black and gray machine. I get nice, smooth black and gray shading with that machine Mm -hmm. just because I had it set up a particular way that fits me and fits my style. Yeah. Now, when you get into sort of an analog form of art, Mm -hmm. it's fascinating the amount of things surrounding it Mm -hmm. because, like... There's so so much. Yeah. Because, like, um, I started screen printing earlier this year year just because... Oh, I love screen printing. Yeah, it's fun. It's so much fun. Because, like, uh, when I started Music City Makers, I was like, what what do I want to make? And I thought about, well, maybe T-shirts. And then I ran down this rabbit hole of, like, well, getting someone else to print T-shirts is really expensive. So I should print it myself. Yeah. But then you have to think about what is the process for Mm -hmm. me to print it? What are the materials that I need? Mm -hmm. And you can usually quantify that as a dollar amount. It's going to cost me $150 for the printing stuff and for the blank t-shirts mm-hmm. and for the materials and then you're going to have to have a little bit of leeway because you're going to botch some and ruin them. Yep. You have to learn. Those become rags Those for the future. Those become rags for the future. It's like a skill tree in a video game. Absolutely. As soon as you get one new node on the skill tree, you get ten more blank spaces that you mm-hmm. have to suddenly decide which way do you want to go with it. Yeah. Hmm. But yes, like you said about um, once you get into an analog art, there's always a ton of other associated things. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that's obviously true for um, digital art as well, just for the amount of programs people use, the amount of brushes you can download. That mm. you know, We were on the topic of analog, but I don't want anyone to yell at me. Yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, I use an iPad for a lot of my tattoo drawings. Hmm. I have it with me. Nice. I pretty much take it everywhere. Uh, why wouldn't you? I mean, I have my iPad. 
and I have my sketchbook, and I have my other sketchbook, and I have my language learning book, and I have my personal journal, and all the other stuff on Procreate, which is the program that I use. Tons and tons and tons of drawings of designs and stuff that I've done. Yep, remember that one from Instagram? Yeah. I don't I don't try to like subject myself to being just a traditional artist. Sure. Because I don't really get to do very much traditional tattooing. Mm. I really don't. There are a lot of tattoo shops in Nashville that only do traditional. Hmm. You have shops like Gold Club and Adventure and Victory and Gratitude. Mm-hmm. And those shops are all pretty much exclusively traditional artists. Hmm. So if you're visiting Nashville and you type in, you know, best traditional tattoo shop in Nashville, you're going to get those shops. The shop I work in, technically, and especially at the time where I started working, is what we would call a street shop. Okay. It's a shop on the street. (laughs) And we take in walk-ins off the street. And it's some custom stuff, some walk-ins. And there are some strengths to that because all the artists that we have can do literally whatever. Like in one day, I might do a couple of those little bangers, those little $60 shot minimum, you know, bird silhouettes or or whatever. And then I might do a watercolor tattoo. Hmm. And then I might do a traditional tattoo. You know, you're bouncing back and forth a lot with styles. And it's good that I am trained in an environment where I have to do all those different things because hmm. you don't want to pigeonhole yourself mm-hmm. ever with anything, really. So the the opposite of the street shop is like typically the, appointment based. The appointment or, only. The Ed Hardy type studio I talked sure. to you about earlier about appointment only. Mm-hmm. I'm only doing the style that I do. Right, and that's what most of the other shops you named in town are. Uh, kind of, kind of, kind of. Like um, Black Thirteen mm-hmm. is a very very well known tattoo shop, and they have a lot of really great artists there. Mm-hmm. I mean, just killer artists. I can't even talk bad about them. You know, I wish I could talk smack, but they're just good artists. Right. Once you are that well-established and you have that level of skill and you have that big of a clientele base, mm. you pretty much can decide, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'm, I'm sure that some of the artists that are there that, you know, I forget what his name is, but there's a guy there that I tattooed, mm. one of his clients, huh. that came in not knowing how busy that shop is, not knowing how busy Black 13 is. And he came in wanting to walk in yeah, and said, yeah, man, I want to get tattooed by, you know, whatever his name is. And they said, he's booked out 14 months. Yep. Yeah. And I ended up tattooing him. Sure. Because he still wanted to get tattooed. Do you get a lot of people who, like, everywhere they visit, they get a tattoo yeah. from the place they're going? Yeah. 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 yeah same way with, like, used bookstores. People always want a book from, from where they were visiting. I bought this in Nashville. Exactly. I bought this in Atlanta. I mm-hmm. bought this in Salt Lake City. Whatever. Yeah, you get people like that. Mm-hmm. I try to come up with cool original ideas for them, and I don't. I can't always sell them. Sure. There was a guy that went to Tunica. You know what Tunica is? No. Tunica is a place in Mississippi. It's like a big gambling strip. Ah. And my mom and dad used to love to go to Tunica. Hmm. I want to say it's in Mississippi. I can't prove you wrong. Yeah, I don't know. They go to Tunica, and dude wins jackpot on a slot machine. Yeah. And he got, I don't know how much money he got, like a fat wad of money sure. in a slot machine. And so to celebrate, he said, that's it. I'm not gambling anymore. There's no way I'm hitting jackpot twice in one night. Nope. I'm going to take my wad of money, and I'm going to leave. And he went to Ruth Chris Steakhouse with his wife, and, nice. which is insanely expensive. Yes. But he took that money. And then he, after that, the next day, he went to the tattoo shop, and he told the tattoo artist, 
this story. Mm-hmm. He's like, I want to get a tattoo to commemorate this weekend because it's been so much fun. So the tattoo artist drew him a slot machine with the arm down. Yeah, bent. Like it's been pulled down super hard. <laughs> Everything's all wonky and, you know, proportions aren't really correct. Sure. It's the style. It's like a new school thing. And instead of money flying out of the bottom of the slot machine, it's a big steak. <clears throat> awesome. And it's brilliant. So he said that him and his wife were out on the town last night drinking, uh, they were drinking Tennessee whiskey and doing all this other stuff and they went dancing and all this. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to do like a, a little shot glass of Tennessee whiskey? Yeah. Japanese style finger waves flying out of the glass. And I couldn't sell it to him. Ah. I tried so hard. Man. I did, I did do a really cool little like tortoise shell guitar pick oh, neat. on him. Talked about like uh, there being other shops in town. It... There's so many tattoo shops in Nashville. There appear to be, so yeah. It, it, it's more than is typical for this size of city? Or would you know? I don't even know. Right. I don't even know. It seems like you're, you're going to have a high amount of tattoo shops in any big city. Mm-hmm. You're going to have them. And you, you typically have, it seems, this is just me, my speculation. This has no bearing on what other tattooers have taught me. Right. Anything. This is completely my opinion. So if I say something wrong, don't be angry. It seems to me like in just about every city, you have a, a handful of street shops mm-hmm. that are in the downtown area. So you're going to have like three or four or five street shops in the downtown area. You're going to have one big tattoo shop that is appointment only. Mm-hmm. Then you're going to have, as you get away from the city, you have less and less. Mm-hmm. And away from the city, less and less. And then you might have one in a small town here or there until you get into a major city again. And I feel like Nashville has a ton. And we also have a lot of diversity hmm. in the tattoo shops. So what kind of relationship, if any, exists between like folks at Titan and at every other shop? Is there ever interaction? I think there is. Hmm. Um, I'm really friendly with the people at uh, Gratitude Tattoo, hmm. just because, like I said, Ellie and I worked together while she was setting up her own thing. So she and I are really friendly, and Karen, the shop owner and my mentor, hmm. She knows some of the guys that work at some of the other shops around Nashville. And there is a kind of communication there, but I don't know what. <laughs> I'm not really a part of it. Right. So I don't I don't know I don't know what's going on right. with all that. Presumably not antagonistic. No, it's not antagonistic and we're all we're all friendly with one another and mm-hmm. I think that if a, an artist came in or not an artist, a client came in from another shop mm-hmm. saying that you know, oh, I was just down at XYZ Tattoo Shop in wherever, mm-hmm. and that guy that I spoke to was very rude to me, and blah, 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 I don't want to go there again. I'm so happy I found you guys. We're not going to back up like, oh, yeah, I've heard that guy's a total dick. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to, we're not going to do that. No. There, we don't, you don't really want any kind of antagonism Mm-mm. in your community. Yeah. Especially with artists and, you know, musicians and the like. You don't want any kind of negative bad feelings and conflict between two shops yeah as soon as clicks start to form bad, bad stuff's gonna go bad down stuff happens and tattoo artists way back when would do all kinds of sick stuff to each other and just <laughs> glue their locks shut Oof. yeah there was a um, there were stories of tattoo artists. this is in like the 60s and 70s and stuff a new tattoo shop would show up and they'd like you know throw rocks through the windows and yeah. break the windows and they'd super glue their locks shut <laughs> prank them do all kinds of dumb stuff. Now, tattoo artists are still like that with one another. We're always, we used to have a prank war going mm. on in the shop. 
I got shot in the neck with a blow dart. <laughs> not the not the sharp part, like you know the blow guns, and they have a, yeah. it's like a plastic cap with a needle on it. Mm -hmm. The needle was removed, right? And it was like a rubber. It's just like a long rubber tip mm -hmm. thing. He shot it out of a blow dart, hit me right in the neck. I had a bruise that was a hickey <laughs> on my neck that was the size of a baseball. It was awful. Goodness. We used to prank each other all the time. So, uh, so the energy still exists, but it's less destructive. It's not destructive. It's not right. Destructive. See it's, the pink cape. It's fun. Yeah, the pink cape. Um, one of the artists that I used to work with was dating someone that worked at an adult store hmm. in downtown. So one day I went out to my truck, when I still had my truck, and I had a big pink dildo hood ornament suction cup to my <laughs> truck. And it's not... There's no, there's just them. I was the apprentice, so being right. the apprentice, you get made fun of all the time. Mm -hmm. You get harassed and you get embarrassed and berated. Yeah. And it's, but it's healthy. They're, he didn't mean anything bad by it. He just, like for my birthday one time, they saran wrapped everything in my booth. <clears throat> and then as I removed all the saran wrap, there was men's health, sex and health pamphlets. <laughs> and just because, you know, like, hey, what can we do to harass the apprentice? Hmm. You know? whatever <laughs> yeah i assume to some degree that's that it, it is part of the process it would sound like because if you are not game for that kind of interaction mm -hmm. maybe this isn't the shop where you belong kind of deal or like it's not the career for you yeah because you're gonna get so much worse stuff thrown at you than good-natured ribbing yeah so so um that being said what you said is completely accurate the level of harassment hmm. and being, you know, being teased and being made fun and being made to wear a pink cape. Right. And if anybody says, you know, what's up with the cape? And you learn to have that, that robust, that firmness mm -hmm. you need to have. And what your mentors do to kind of irritate you and whatever is designed to prepare you for the rudeness mm -hmm. and frankly the absolute despicable behavior of the american public yep. like service industry it, yes. I mean, technically we are tattooing is a service yeah any customer service industry right now is just nodding along with you because yeah. yep yeah people are awful and i have but i re reserve the right to refuse service to anyone mm -hmm. for any reason and i've very rarely ever had to do it but i have had to do it sure happens uh, lesson number one for today, it's a tattoo machine. Less, tattoo machine. Lesson number two, the customer is not always right. The customer... To be no, honest, sir. To be honest, the average person does not know what a good tattoo looks like. Mm. They don't. They do not know. The average person also has bad ideas <laughs> for their tattoos. Because they're not a professional tattoo artist. They're not a professional tattoo artist. Yeah. You don't know what's going to look good over time. Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to age well. You don't know... You know, you know that you want tattooed, and that's fine. But... There is a there's a reason that there are professionals. Mm -hmm. Sub lesson from customers not always right. It's okay to be wrong. It's totally okay to be wrong. Yeah, if you're willing to learn. Yeah, when I was a tattoo apprentice, learning mm -hmm. how to design tattoos, I didn't know what a good tattoo looked like, and then I realized that there is good design. There's bad design. Mm -hmm. There's a way to make a bad design look good. You know, different styles, and you just kind of have to accept that every artist has their own style, and certain clients want what they want. And you just do it within the best of your ability. Sometimes. Yeah. Like all other artists, all other tattooers, I think, could agree with me on this one point. Even if they haven't agreed with me on anything that I've said <laughs> previously. Is that your work is your best advertisement. Yeah. 
the quality of your work is the number one thing that you can do to show off how good you are and to get more people in and to make good money and to support yourself and to run a good shop, Mm -hmm. to be a good artist, the quality of your work is the number one thing. I think that's about it. I think that's about it. I I think think we're good. It was a good place to close. Yeah. So yeah, uh, thanks for joining me. That was fun. I learned a lot. Yeah, I feel like I learned a lot too. (laughs) Well, hope you had a good time. I certainly did. I did. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It was fun. I'm going to post this on my... Try to post this on my Instagram and Facebook and Absolutely. Twitter. I'm on everything. Yeah. Sir Ty Higgins. Mm-hmm. And we'll, S-U-R-D. we'll post links to those in the description below. Fabulous. And uh, I guess I'll go ahead and do my small business plug and we'll get on out of here. Absolutely. As always, Makers Cast is brought to you by Music City Makers, a creative co-op based here in Nashville where we make what we love and we hope you'll love what we make. We have screen printed shirts previously mentioned, uh, my self-published short fiction other random things you can check out, maybe some new stuff since the last time you looked around. So see all the links for that below as well. And if you enjoyed this podcast on whatever thing you're listening on, we're now on Spotify. Congratulations to me, I guess. I don't know why I said congratulations. Uh, then, you know, share it around, give it a like, do the internet things you know how to do because you know how to find it in the first place. Thank you very much.